Welcome to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne. At risk of being mocked by many of you this morning, I want to begin by acknowledging my favourite movie of 2023, although, to be honest, I think we only got to the movies about three times, so it's not a long list of contenders. The award for my personal favourite movie of 2023 goes to... Pause to open the award envelope. Barbie. Not Oppenheimer, I didn't even see it. Her Barbie, largely because of the way it so cleverly subverted expectations and turned a movie about a plastic toy into a cry of existential angst that tapped into, I think, the despair of a whole generation all summed up neatly in the hit theme song by Billie Eilish called What Was I Made For? Here's the first verse. She says, I used to float, now I just fall down. I used to know, but I'm not sure now what I was made for. What was I made for? What was I made for? I mean, if you are a plastic doll like Barbie, it's kind of obvious that you've been formed and fashioned and made. Apparently not so obvious for us, or so we're told. But here she is, you see, beautiful, plastic, plastic boyfriend, and absolutely perplexed about her purpose. Now, it turns out Billie Eilish was writing from the heart, a super successful pop artist since the age of 16. Here's what she said as she received a Golden Globe Award. She says, I want to dedicate this song to anyone who experiences hopelessness, the feeling of existential dread, and feeling like, what's the point? Why am I here? And why am I doing this? She says, sorry to be dark, but I've spent a lot of time feeling that way. Now, if those are your questions too, if you are ever tempted to ask, what was I made for? Let me invite you into Genesis chapter 2, where I would suggest there are some very significant answers. Let me offer you just a quick preview. We're going to see not Barbie, but a man of earth, formed from dust. In later chapters, we'll call him Adam as a personal name. But here, in what's a pun in the original Hebrew language, you see he's fashioned from the dust of the earth. God breathes the spirit of life into him. And because he is taken from the ground which is Adamah in Hebrew, he is called the Adam. And he stands at this point for all the earthly dust-made humans will follow. And what was he made for? Well, we'll see first and foremost, he is made for a royal garden party. Easy and intimate 
up close and personal with God. Purpose number one. Number two, we'll see he's made for meaningful work on behalf of his king and creator. Number three, he's made for relationship because we'll see his aloneness among all the good things is the one thing that is not good. All three of those original purposes so elusive in the world we live in today, which is exactly the point. Because you see, in terms of the biblical story, we're looking this morning at a time before, a time before things go profoundly wrong. In a sense, what we're looking at here is like an overture to the long story of the Bible. It's a playing out of the story of Israel invited into God's presence in the promised land and because of their failure, exile into Babylon where they are among the original readers of this Genesis story. So let's dig in. Purpose number one, a garden party. Now, I'm almost sure there'd be someone here this morning who's actually been on that most prized of guest lists. An invitation to a royal garden party at Buckingham Palace. I'm not sure if Charles is going to keep up the tradition, but, but you know, wow, in, in the good old days, a cucumber sandwich in the Buckingham Palace gardens with the Queen was the ultimate invitation. I remember when I was a kid, parents of one of my schoolmates, they were both doctors, and in terms of our little country town in New South Wales, uh, they lived in a spectacular mansion in spectacular gardens. And every year, they would run their own equivalent, a garden party charity fundraiser. Not quite royalty, but almost. And it always seemed just so fantastic. Now that's our scene in Genesis 2. Having formed the man and breathed life into him, here's the scene. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight or good for food. Okay, no cucumber sandwiches because there wasn't actually bread yet, but, but this is fantastic. An orchard with every possible fruit tree. But better still, and there's a hint of this in chapter 3, you see the Lord God himself walks in the garden in the cool of the day, looking to easily mingle with his loyal subjects. Intention was easy, unmediated access between man and maker in that unspoiled garden paradise. And better still, right at the centre of the garden is the tree of life. This fragile man of dust, this Adam, God tells him he can freely eat of it and keep on living without end. 
of course, you'll notice there's another tree beside it, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. Remember, every tree without exception, verse 9, every tree without exception looks great, smells good, tastes even better. It's like the Weight Watchers version of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. So here's the scene, part one, what was I made for? A garden party with God, surrounded by a good creation in the fertile garden with everything I need. Unmediated access to God, even eating from the tree of life. Okay, here's purpose number two. What was I made for? Number two, the man is given work to do. It's meaningful work. Now, it may be a cliche to point out at this stage that unemployment can be profoundly depressing. You might have experienced it. In fact, so can retirement. There's something in our humanity, maybe even a primal desire to be productive, to be useful. Now, look, we're going to see as things unfold in chapter 3, that something happens that means we're not in Eden anymore. And so being productive means frustration and pain. But let's imagine for a moment, if you are a working person, that your job's not boring, not stressful, that it's a delight instead. See, we're still in the Garden of Eden, and here's the deal. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. If he's asking, what was I made for? He's a gardener. He's a groundsman. He's a carer for planet Earth. You might have noticed the same idea back in verse 5, which is interesting. It's almost as if there's a whole ecosystem depending on him. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, until in verse 6 God forms him from the ground to work the ground as the ground man, Adam. Now you see at this point, the ground man is tending a completely cooperative garden. It's fertile. Things grow. It's full of fruit he can freely eat from, including the tree of life, which you'll remember was there in the middle of the garden. It is a fruit salad smorgasbord. Lord God says, eat any of it. Although again, that famous limitation in verse 17. Not every tree, because there is one tree that's off limits. God says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we're going to leave it there and come back for a closer look next time. It's flagged there to create classic, dramatic tension. 
There's a literary principle explained by the Russian playwright Anton Chekhov. He says, when you're writing drama, one must never place a loaded rifle on the stage if it isn't going to go off. It's wrong to make promises you don't mean to keep. A professional writers ever since have called that principle Chekhov's gun. So here we are, a gardener who can freely eat from the garden with just that one small limitation, loaded, ready to go off in the next chapter. But a tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But when you do, you'll surely die. Hold that thought. Now remember at this point we're asking the Barbie question, the Billie Eilish question, what was I made for? Here's number three. Maybe in the light of what's broken in our world, for many people the most painful of them all. You might have read in a recent issue of our church magazine, The Leaflet, an article about the loneliness epidemic in a study of 1,500 Australians aged from 18 to 25, 37% said they experienced what they called a problematic level of loneliness. You see, no amount of online gaming or Snapchat or Instagram, no number of Facebook friends seem to fix it. It's getting worse. 21% of the 18 to 24 demographic said they only had one close friend or none at all. That's up from 7% a decade ago. So it's a, a threefold increase. Loneliness can literally kill us. And potentially, the older you get, the harder it gets. Now look, you see, even back in the ideal garden, there is one thing wrong. In all the creation account we saw last week, where everything is good and good and good and very good, verse 18, there is just this one thing that is not good. Then the Lord God says it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. See, the man without a helper, that's not good. He's keeping busy in verse 19 doing science, taxonomy, naming things, categorising all the animals as God looks on with interest. But among every living thing, there's not a helper fit for him. And so there's this strange-sounding surgical story of the, the man anaesthetised and then his flesh divided. The word translated rib in our ESV Bibles is translated everywhere else as side, almost taking one side of his flesh and from one side of his flesh creating what used to be called his better half. And when he sees the woman, he says in verse 23, at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken 
out of man. Here is the helper I needed. Here is the missing piece of the puzzle. Not from the ground, but of exactly the same stuff. Flesh of my flesh, taken from my side to be by my side. Exactly the helper he needs. Now it is a minefield, isn't it? If we're looking at this chapter as a kind of a primal ideal, it'd be easy because from the English and because of history, it would be easy to think that the word helper is somehow subordinate. That's not actually what the original word here infers. I remember years ago as a Bible college student, we had a guest lecturer who'd been one of the expert Hebrew translators of the New International Version Bible, a prominent American scholar, Dr. Bruce Waltke. And he took just one lecture with us. I vividly remember it. Focused on this verse, I will make a helper fit for him. He said, if you men think that's talking about someone to do the dishes and look after the, the domestic chores, he said, think again. The Hebrew word ezer, translated helper. Not talking about the sort of help a servant or slave gives you. It's talking about the sort of help a parent gives the primary school kid with the math homework. So I'm doing the American version. Math homework, he said it that way. Because ezer, you see, is the same Hebrew word you get in the famous verse in Psalm 46. God is our strength and refuge, a very present help in trouble. Real help of that kind only comes from competence and strength. What we've got in this ideal garden is the makings of a fantastic team. Man and woman in relationship, in partnership, which is one of the reasons given in verse 24 for marriage. And of course, at this point, so ideal. All part of life in the good garden, with the tree of life in the centre of it. Which again isn't the way it all turns out when we get to chapter 3. Again, what was I made for? In this primal ideal, made for relationship. Open, honest, unashamed. Man and woman relating, not in brutal patriarchy. Made for partnership. With help needed and help freely given. See, the trouble is, in looking at the scene here in Genesis chapter 2, in looking at life as we experience it now, it is really clear, isn't it? There's more to the story. That Chekhov's loaded gun, the ticking time bomb, we'll see it explodes in the next chapter in what we've come to call the fall. And I don't want to spoil the suspense by stepping too far into next time's territory, but with that spoiler alert in place, this picture isn't, of course, the way the world plays out in our own experience today. Not even in our own literal gardens. Even 
when we had a backyard back in Brisbane, you know, something would always bite me or sting me or cut me. I hate gardening. But on a larger scale, it's, it's part of the reason for so much existential angst, so much doubt about meaning and purpose. The feeling that if God is there, he feels so distant. That our interpersonal relationship, that our, that our affections are so easily messed up. That Christmas is so easily and so often a family battleground. That we have a deep inner hunger that's so hard to satisfy. And because death always seems to win in the end, we, we end up thinking like Billie Eilish, why bother anyway? Why not just give up and die? Big questions, which as the Bible story unfolds, grapples with. It offers not so much a quick fix, but the start of a solution when we come to the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who makes extraordinary claims and does extraordinary things that speak of ultimate restoration. The one who in John's Gospel, we're told, was there from the beginning and is now born of God in human flesh. As the story unfolds in John's Gospel, religious leaders won't tolerate his claims and he's arrested. It's interesting. They find him praying in a garden. Maybe just an accidental detail. Or is it perhaps an echo of something more primal? He is crucified, which seems like the end of the story. And yet it's not. And again, we find ourselves in John chapter 21, in a garden, outside an empty garden tomb, and Mary weeping. She hears a voice through her tears. Calm voice. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Big questions. And then this quirky detail John catches for us, not by accident, supposing him to be the garden. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Mary mistakes him for the garden. Look, it's a subtle detail, but like every subtle detail, especially in John's Gospel, it's there for a reason. Because he has just got up again after three days dead. There are angels there to announce it. They said the same. Why are you weeping? No more tears. This is the new Adam and the new start we've been waiting for which other New Testament writers pick up and say explicitly, time after time after time, a new Adam, the original garden, and a new start with new hearts. The start of new community. The start of restored relationships. The start of new meaning as the empty tomb means suddenly the futile becomes somehow significant. 
and most profoundly restored relationship with God that culminates as we move towards the very end of the Bible story with a garden city, water of life flowing out from it and the tree of life on the riverbanks. God among his people in a new reality with no more tears or crying or pain. Friends, what were we made for? Above all else, we were made for that. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.